Well, good morning, everyone. It's a real pleasure and a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, please uh, take a Bible and open up to Joe chapter 1. We're going to be reading the first couple of chapters this morning. I uh, just want to give you a heads up. So I had a, I had a cold earlier this morning. Now, I'm not contagious anymore, but the cold kind of came into my chest later on in the week. And so, which it, and so I mean, it's fine as long as I don't breathe or talk. So, um, <clears throat> so there might be times in this, uh, throughout this message that I have to, uh, have to take a, a coughing break. And so f- please excuse, excuse that. But hopefully the Lord will sustain me as we read this passage, this great passage and, and uh, think about it together. So we're going to be in Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and, seven, and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they're dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? 
he still holds his fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he'll give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive from God, good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with them on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Well, growing up, I knew a man who looked like he had everything. He had a well-paying job a huge home in a nice area, a happy marriage, good-looking kids, lots of friends. Everyone that knew him could tell that he lived a pretty blessed life. But then, one day, he lost his daughter. A few years later, he lost another daughter. And then he lost his wife. And when that happened, I couldn't help but think, how is, how is he meant to respond to suffering like that? I mean, how, how is a person meant to respond to such great suffering? I think, broadly speaking, there are two common responses to suffering. One response is to see suffering and think, well, someone must have done something wrong. Or if you're the one suffering, to think, oh no, I must have done something wrong. This is what we might call moralism. The moralist draws a straight line between sin and suffering. This is how a lot of religious people think. Another response to suffering is to think, oh, it's all meaningless. There's no good reason for suffering. We might even say things like, ah, see, how, how can a good God allow this to happen? Either he doesn't exist, or if he does exist, he's cruel. Or if he's not cruel, he's powerless, pathetic even. We might call this response cynicism. This is the response of the atheist. Yet it's also possible for Christians to respond cynically to suffering, to, to doubt the character of God. So how are we supposed to respond when suffering seems so cruel, so meaningless, so random, so unexpected, so unjust, so mysterious? Well, this brings us to the book of Job. No other book in the Bible, maybe no other book in history wrestles with the reality of suffering like the book of Job. No other book is, is as honest, as, as profound, or as captivating as the book of Job. In the face of great suffering, how should Job respond? Throughout the book, we see both of these responses to suffering, moralism and cynicism. The question is, are these the only options that we have? Or is there a third response? Well, the book of Job is going to suggest that there is. But before we get into it, it's helpful to understand the genre of the book. So understanding the genre of a book helps us to know how to read it and understand it. For example, when reading a book like Harry Potter, for example, it's really important to know the genre. It's vital that you understand that what you're reading 
is a fantasy novel. Otherwise, on your 11th birthday, you might be really distraught when you don't get a letter from Hogwarts. <laughs> and some of you might even know how that feels. And so when we come to the book of Job, it's helpful to know the genre that we're dealing with. The book of Job belongs in a category of old, to a category of Old Testament, Testament books called wisdom literature. And this is helpful to know when we're trying to answer the question, are we meant to believe that Job was a real person? And how important is the answer to that question? Well, in answering that question, we must consider the genre. Job is wisdom literature. It's not historical narrative. Its purpose is to teach us wisdom, not history. Now, that doesn't mean that Job wasn't a real person. It simply means that the truth of the book doesn't depend on whether Job was real or not. Because wisdom literature is able to use both real and fictional events to explore various topics. So whether or not you believe Job was a real person, the message of the book is still the same. Having said that, I think that we do have good reasons to believe that Job was a real person. Firstly, in verse 1, we read this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Now, we're not quite sure where Uz was exactly, but we do know that it was a real place. So the book at least begins in a way that presents Job as someone who lived in a real place. <laughs> Secondly, the prophet Ezekiel, many years later, highlights Job as an example of righteousness. So in Ezekiel chapter 14, he, twi he twice places Job alongside Noah and Daniel, two men whom the Bible clearly presents as historical people. And lastly, in James chapter 5, verses 10 to 11, we read this. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Notice there that James not only uses Job as an example, which would be slightly strange if he was a fictional character, but James also identifies Job as a prophet. And so I think these are solid reasons for believing that Job was a real person. Having said that, I think we still need to recognize that the book is wisdom literature. And so at least some parts of the book of Job are the result of literary art. For example, if you were to read through the book of Job, Job you'd notice that most of the book is made up of these long poetic speeches. And so you might wonder, okay, if Job was a real person, did, did that really happen? Did these speeches really happen like this? Did people dialogue with each other in such exquisite poetry? Well, again, if you've ever been to watch a Broadway show like Hamilton, I doubt you sat there thinking, wow, the past was so different. Isn't it amazing how people used to just sing and dance with such spontaneity? Like you just instinctively know that because of the genre, you're watching something artistic. Even so, you also know that like Hamilton was based on historical people and events. And I think something similar is happening with the book of Job. We don't know who wrote the book, but it seems that whoever wrote it took a well-known story, a true story about a godly man who suffered. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author composed a poetic masterpiece to give us a theological message. But what is this theological message? Well, obviously, we've just read the first couple of chapters. You can already tell the book of Job is about suffering. And if we read the whole book, we'd see that Job wants to know why he is suffering. And maybe you're here this morning and you have the same question. You want to know why you're suffering or maybe why you have suffered in the past. Yet it's important to realize that Job never actually finds out why he suffers. And so that means the book of Job was not written to answer the why question. It doesn't tell us why we suffer. And that means that if we come to it asking that question, then we'll leave disappointed. 
The book of Job is more about how to respond to suffering. In the face of great suffering, how should we respond? Will we respond with moralism? Will we respond with cynicism? Or will we respond with wisdom? You see, at the heart of the book of Job is this issue of wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to apply truth to particular situations. Job was written to give us wisdom in the face of suffering. So that when suffering hits, and if you've lived long enough, you'll know that suffering will hit. So that when suffering hits, we might respond with wisdom. In other words, the big question in the book of Job is this, who is wise? And this helps us to make sense of the opening paragraph. So look down at verse one of chapter one. You'll see that Job is introduced. And how is he introduced to us? He's introduced as a man of wisdom. Specifically, we're told four things about him in verse one. First, he's blameless. Now, this doesn't mean that he was sinless or perfect. The word that has the sense of personal integrity. Job is the same person on the inside as he is on the outside. We might use the expression, what you see is what you get. The people that Job saw at the office was the same person Job, uh, his family saw at, at home. To be blameless is to be the opposite of a hypocrite. But more than that, a blameless person is somebody who walks with God and delights to obey him. That is Job. Secondly, Job is upright. This shifts the focus from Job's integrity to the way he treated other people. So to be upright is to live righteously, not simply before God, but before others. Job treated other people righteously, whether that be his family or his servants or the poor and vulnerable of society. He was a man that you could do business with, a man who loved others as he loved himself. Third, Job feared God. Now in our day and age, that might sound negative, but biblically speaking, to fear God is a positive thing. It's to be filled with awe and reverence at who God is. It means to trust God and love him devotedly. Throughout the wisdom literature of the Bible, we see that fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. The fourth thing we see is that Job turned away from evil. He, he stayed on the straight path. He didn't veer off into the crooked ways of sin. We might say that his life was characterized by daily repentance, a habitual turning away from evil in his thoughts, words, and deeds. And interestingly, these four characteristics are actually used in the book of Proverbs to describe the wise man. And so Job is being introduced to us as the prototypical wise man. But that's not all we learn. In the rest of the paragraph, we learn that Job is extremely blessed. Look at verse two. We see that he has 10 children, seven sons and three daughters. The numbers 10, seven and three were symbolically important numbers in the Bible. They represented completeness and perfection. Job is presented as having an ideal family. You know, they'd have been the, the family on the Disney commercials, you know, the ones on the Pottery Barn website. You know that Job, Job's family were that family. And Job didn't just have a big family, he had wealth. Look at verse three. He was a businessman with many servants. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. Again, these are numbers of symbolic significance. In a day, in a day and age where livestock was a measure of one's wealth, we see that Job was flush with cash. He'd have been number one, on the Forbes rich list every year. That's why verse three says that he was the greatest or we might say the richest of all the people of the East. If this wasn't impressive enough, we also learned that Job was a great father. You know, if you if ever, if some of you kids watch Bluey, my kids love Bluey, you know? I love Bluey, but then I just feel like a terrible dad when I see Bluey's dad. But you know, Job was like Bluey's dad. He was a great dad. His kids loved him and they loved one another. In verse four, we see that all his kids would regularly get together for dinner. Can you imagine that? 
10 siblings all getting along. This is like the opposite of the TV show Succession. Job is like the anti-Logan Roy, such as the atmosphere Job has cultivated in his home. Then in verse 5, we see that Job would continually offer sacrifices on behalf of each child, just in case one of them had cursed God in their hearts. He's the spiritual leader in the family. He is a man of wisdom. And so that's Job. Yet immediately after being told about the greatness of Job, were taken to the worst day of his life. In verse 6, we learn of a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And these are most likely angels who are part of the heavenly council. Yet we're then told that Satan also came among them. The word Satan means accuser or adversary. And you might notice in the footnote of your Bible there, that the Hebrew here literally says the Satan or the accuser. And so Satan isn't a name here, but it's a title. It's not until the New Testament that we learn the identity of this accuser. Turns out this is the one who tempted Adam and Eve. Jesus calls him the devil. He's the arch enemy of God, the accuser of God's people. And the text here presents Satan as an outsider. He's, he's an intruder into the heavenly council. And so God addresses him in verse 7 there. He says, from where have you come? And Satan responds, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Now, Satan's not just been strolling around innocently here. As we're about to see, he's been prowling around like a lion seeking someone to devour. And so when God says, what God says next should surprise us. In verse eight, God says, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? It's, it seems from God's comment that Satan's been searching the earth to try and find someone who is genuinely godly. And God claims, actually, there is someone, my servant Job. Here is someone who truly fears me. To which Satan responds, huh, Job? That guy? Y you can't be serious. Does God, does Job fear God for no reason? Look at the life you've given him. A perfect family, wealth health, happiness. Job's godliness is, is artificial. He's been born with a silver spoon in his mouth. You've, you've hemmed him in. You've wrapped him in cotton wool. He's never had to go a day without. Job doesn't love you, God. He loves all these things that you've given him. His piety is only the result of his prosperity. Job He's not leaning on you, God. He's leaning on all these blessings. Look, let me prove it to you. Knock the crutch of prosperity from his life. And when he falls down, it will not be to worship you. Mark my words. Take these things away, God. And he'll curse you to your face. Satan is a cynic. And in his cynicism, he challenges the character of Job. He's basically saying, God, Job doesn't fear you. He's using you to get more stuff. Job, he's discovered the prosperity gospel. But it's not just Job's character he's insulting. It's also God's. He's saying to God, God, you've made it easy for Job. You've basically bribed him with gifts in exchange for love and devotion and worship. If you take these gifts away, you're not worthy of Job's worship. And see what Satan's doing here? He's implying that God is unworthy of being loved by virtue of who he is. And I think this gets to the heart of our passage this morning. This passage is less about Job's character and more about God's worthiness. The central question is this, is God so good 
that he can be loved for himself and not just for his gifts. Will Job hold on to God when no benefits are attached? Does, does Job fear God for no reason? Now, despite his evil intentions, let's give the devil his due. Satan has put his finger on an important issue. Does anyone fear God for no reason? Let me ask you, why do you fear God? Why do you love and worship the Lord? It's not difficult to put yourself in this passage, is it? You know, like God, God has like Job, sorry, God has showered us with many countless blessings. A successful career, maybe, a, a good reputation. Maybe he's given us a nice home, an abundance of possessions. Maybe he's given us a spouse or children or friends or health or safety. Yet what if God took all those things away? Would we still love him? Would we still trust him? You can see why this is important, can't you? So think of how it would make you feel if someone was all friendly with you. However, as soon as they realize that you're not going to give them what they want, like that, they're gone. You'd feel devalued, used. You'd think that that person was a manipulator, a consumer. Well, that's what Satan is accusing Job of. He's saying, he's saying to God, Job is using you. He's manipulating you. He's exploiting you. He just worships you because you give him stuff. And whether we like it or not, that does raise an, an uncomfortable question for all of us, doesn't it? Is God so good, so worthy of worship, that he can be loved for himself and not just for his gifts? Would we hold on to God when no benefits were attached? Would we continue to worship God even if he took away everything? And unfortunately, the only way we can know the answer to that is through suffering. That's true for us, and it was true for Job. And so in verse 11, God gives Satan permission to afflict Job. As long as Satan doesn't lay a hand on Job physically, he can do as he pleases. And at first, we might wonder, why on earth would God entertain Satan's challenge? It's important that we see here that God is in complete control. He's not being manipulated by Satan. He's not feeling insecure. Rather, God is about to demonstrate his wisdom and power through the evil of Satan. Because as we're going to see, Satan's plan massively backfires. God gives Satan just enough room, just enough rope to hang himself. Beginning in verse 13, we witness four disastrous events in Job's life. These events all happen on the same day, one after another. So just try and picture the scene in your own imagination. Job's sons and daughters are feasting in their oldest brother's house. Job is sitting peacefully at home. Life is good. But then there's a knock at the door. Before Job can sit up, a servant runs in, almost out of breath. Master, the oxen and donkeys have been stolen. The Sabians have killed your servants. I alone have escaped to tell you. Before Job can even react, there's another knock at the door. Again, a servant runs in. He's dripping with sweat. Master, lightning fell from heaven. It, it consumed your sheep and servants. I alone have escaped to tell you. Once again, before Job can even process what has happened, there's another knock at the door. A third servant runs in, his eyes bloodshot. bloodshot. Master, the Chaldeans, they, they, they came out of nowhere. They, they took your camels, they killed your servants. I alone have escaped to tell you. And then as Job's blood pressure increases, as his heart starts to palpitate, A fourth servant walks in. You can imagine him shaking. You can imagine the blood drained from his face, his lip trembling. Master, your, your sons and daughters? Job starts shaking his head on, please no. Your children? A great wind came 
from the wilderness. It struck the four corners of the house. It fell among the young people. I'm so sorry. They're all dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. I mean, it's difficult to imagine the trauma Job must have experienced. In the space of a few tragic minutes, Job is bankrupt and bereft. He's lost almost everything. And so the question arises, how is Job going to respond? In verse 20, we read that he arose. He tore his robe in grief. He shaved his head in mourning. And he fell to the ground. All of heaven is silent. What's going to come out of his mouth? Is the accuser going to be right? Look at the text. Job fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. In the face of great suffering, Job, the wise man, fears God. And he utters one of the most wonderful verses in all the Bible. He acknowledges that God gave him all of his blessings. He didn't earn them through his hard work and shrewd business and smart thinking and godly living. His family, his wealth, they were all gracious gifts from God. Yet Job also acknowledges that it was God who took them away. It never occurs to Job to curse the the Sabians or the Chaldeans. He doesn't think about cursing his servants for not being watchful or cursing nature for being so cruel. All secondary causes vanish. Job knows that God let this happen. God took these things away, yet even so, God is still worthy of his worship. A few years ago, CNN released an article about Pete Holmes. If you don't know Pete Holmes, he is a comedian who grew up as a professing Christian. He read his Bible didn't smoke, didn't drink, didn't have sex before marriage. He went on mission trips, played in the worship team. He even wore pleated khakis, apparently. He thought he was doing everything right. However, one day, his wife left him for another man. And when that happened, the article says, his world and his belief in God exploded. This is how Pete Holmes responded. He said, I felt like the Lord hadn't held up his end of the bargain. And I was angry. Holmes eventually gave up his belief in the biblical God. Now, I want to be sensitive to Holmes. I've not experienced what he's experienced. I don't know how I would respond in his situation. Yet, I think his suffering did reveal something about his faith. Because for Holmes, God was not worthy of his worship apart from his gifts. He was willing to believe in God until God took something away. And maybe you find yourself in a similar place this morning. Maybe when the Lord gives, you find it easy to trust him. However, when he takes away or when he doesn't give you what you want, you become cynical. You get angry with God. You pull away from him, maybe even curse him in your heart. Suffering has a way of revealing what we worship, doesn't it? And I think if we're, all, if we're honest, we've all been guilty of loving God for his gifts rather than for himself. I don't know about you, but I know for me that I've tried to use God as a means to the good life. And I think the example of Job should cause us to repent of our idolatry. The narrator concludes in verse 22 by saying, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Satan has been silenced. God has been glorified. It's a wonderful conclusion to a terrible story. Yet, it's not the conclusion. It's like in a movie where the scene, the screen fades to black and you think it's over, but then there's another scene. Because in chapter two, we learn of another day. We don't know how much time has elapsed in between 
the first chapter and the second. But once again, the sons of God present themselves before the Lord. And once again, the accuser intrudes on the proceedings. And the scene plays out awfully familiar to the last one. God asks Satan what he's been up to. Satan gives the same answer. And once again, in verse 3, God says, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. This is the third time we've been told these things about Job. And it's really important that we remember this. Because later on in the book, Job's friends are going to question Job's character. And we might be tempted to believe them. To think that maybe Job isn't quite as squeaky clean as he makes out. That maybe, just maybe, his suffering is the result of his sin, as his friends try to point out. But we need to remember that both the narrator in chapter 1 and God have told us that he is innocent. God continues in verse 3. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. God exposes Satan's murderous motives. Yet despite his intentions, Job is still blameless. Astonishingly, Satan will not throw in the towel. In verse 4, he says, skin for skin, all that a man has, he'll give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he'll curse you to your face. You see how cynical Satan is? He implies that these dreadful calamities didn't really bother Job all that much. Kind of like water off a duck's back. Satan says, look, Job obviously didn't care about losing all those things. They were clearly not that important to him. Turns out that all Job really cares about is himself. He's just like, he's just a narcissist. How about you just take, how about you take away his health? Then you'll see his true colors. Mark my words, take away his health, then he'll curse you to your face. Shockingly, in verse 6, the Lord gives Satan permission to take away Job's health, only sparing his life. And from our perspective, it's difficult to understand why God is allowing this, isn't it? I mean, we, we, we'd expect at this point God to say, okay, Satan, that is enough. Get out of here. I mean, that's what we'd have said, right? Yet the Lord decides that another test is needed. And I think this is meant to teach us something. So as Christopher Ash says on his commentary in the book of Job, the glory of God really is more important than our comfort. The glory of God really is more important than our wealth and health and happiness. In a society that places our own personal happiness as the highest good, this is really hard for us to hear and even process Yet in some deep and profound way, it's necessary for the whole universe to see that God is worthy, worthy of Job's worship. And he's worthy of our worship too. And that God's worth is in no way dependent on God's gifts. And so for the second time, Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord. And in verse 7, he strikes Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. The itching is so bad that he takes a piece of broken pottery and he uses it to scratch himself. It's impossible to know the exact identity of his condition. Throughout the rest of the book, Job describes his symptoms. So he says he has aching bones, peeling skin, severe loss of weight, fevers, fits of depression, weeping, sleeplessness, nightmares, putrid breath, failing vision, rotting teeth, haggard looks. In verse 12 of our passage in chapter 2, we see that his friends didn't even recognize him by the time they showed up. At the end of verse 8, we see that Job goes and he sits in the ashes. This is likely a reference to the rubbish stump located outside the city. In the New Testament, we learn of a similar place called Gehenna. Jesus uses it as a metaphor for hell. And this is where Job 
finds himself. And we might think that at this point things couldn't get any worse. Yet they do. Because in verse 7, Job's wife speaks up. This is the first and only time we hear from her. And in the moment when Job most needs encouragement, she says, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. It's here that we see the trial of Job reach its climax. He's lost his wealth, his children, his health, and now his wife, the one person he has left, is tempting him to curse God. She thinks it would be better for him to end his life. And this must have been so tempting, wasn't it? I mean, think about your own life. Imagine that you were suffering and you were trying to respond well. You were trying to trust the Lord. And then a friend or a spouse comes up to you and he says, comes up to you and they say, you know, you have every right to grumble right now. God has clearly done you dirty. If I were you, I would be calling him every name under the sun. Just curse God and end your misery. It'd be so tempting to give in and let God have it, wouldn't it? My Old Testament seminary, seminary professor used to call this catalogue of calamities the perfect storm. And Job is right in the middle of it. And he's all alone. How is Job going to respond this time? Is God still worthy of Job's worship? Well, look at verse 10. Job says to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Unlike Job, his wife has not responded to suffering with wisdom. She's responded with foolishness. Job continues, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? The word evil there just means uh, disaster or bad. Job's not suggesting that God is acting wickedly or in a, in a way that's evil. He's just recognizing that God allows good things to happen and he allows disaster to come upon us or bad things to come upon us. Yet, whether God allows good or bad, he's still worthy of Job's worship. And so comes the conclusion in verse 10. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job has maintained his integrity. Whatever his circumstances, he continues to worship God. And chapter 2 ends on a somber note. In verse 11, three of Job's friends travel a long way to show him sympathy and comfort. And when they arrive, they're horrified by his appearance. They raise their voices, they weep, they tear their robes, they sprinkle dust on their heads, they sit with him in silence for seven days and seven nights. They bring to Job's lonely ash heap the compassion of a silent presence. If only they'd kept their mouths shut. But that's for another sermon. So what are we to take from all this? Well, Maybe some of you are here this morning and like Job, your suffering is very great. Maybe you've suffered financially. Maybe you've been defrauded or you've been crippled by bills or you've suffered with unemployment. Maybe you've not known how you're going to pay the mortgage or put food on the table or fix the broken car. Maybe some of you have suffered health issues, whether physically or even mentally. You spend days in hospital or weeks in bed, months feeling weak and useless. You've been in pain, in anguish, in confusion, in despair. Maybe you've even suffered the loss of a loved one, a friend, a family member, a spouse, a child. You've drenched your tears your, your pillow, sorry, in tears. You've endured sleepless nights. You've felt sick to your stomach with grief. Maybe you've suffered the loss of possessions or reputation or relationships or career. Maybe you've been bullied or abused or neglect, neglected or mocked or despised or oppressed. You know, I'm sure all of you in some way are feeling the pain of being part of Redeemer Baptist Church right now and knowing that 
in a few months time that you're not gonna be meeting here? This is your church home. Maybe you had high hopes that this church would grow and, and flourish and that many people would be saved and missionaries would be sent out and maybe other churches would be planted. And so maybe you're feeling a sense of grief this morning. And like Job, some of you just know what it's like to be caught in that perfect storm of suffering, one thing after the next. You know what it feels like when the Lord takes away. And for, for some of us, that feeling is all too real this morning. Yet even so, you sit here this morning in the midst of your sorrows and you can still say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And if you can do that this morning, then I wanna encourage you and I wanna say, that is amazing. That whatever your circumstances, even though you have suffered, even though you are suffering, you have the wisdom to still fear God. That whether you receive good or bad, you've learned that God is worthy of worship. And so in the midst of your sorrows, you can still rejoice this morning. That's exactly what the Apostle Peter says in the New Testament. He says in chapter one, verses six to seven, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, although you've been tested and grieved by various trials, your faith has proved genuine. And this tested genuineness of your faith, Peter says, is more precious than gold. And that means you can rejoice this morning. Because when Jesus returns, you can be confident that your suffering will turn to glory, that God will wipe every tear from your eyes. But what if you haven't suffered greatly? What if you've never been truly tested? How does this passage speak to you? Well, I think it should prepare you for future suffering. Shortly after moving to the States, as you can tell, I'm not from around here, but after moving to the States, I remember getting an email from the leasing office at the, uh, from the apartment complex where we rented the place. And the subject line was this, Hurricane Joaquim is on his way. Now, as an Englishman, I think I soiled my pants when I read that email because we don't get hurricanes where I'm from. But the email was actually really helpful. It was all about how to prepare for the hurricane. Make sure you have batteries, flashlights, a portable radio, water. Prepare yourself now so that when the hurricane hits, you'll be prepared. You can respond well. In many ways, the book of Job is trying to do exactly the same thing for us. Suffering is inevitable. There'll be times when we're hit by one storm after the next. And how we, res we will respond then largely depends on how we prepare our hearts now. So don't put your trust in money. Don't put your happiness in your kids. Don't put your value in your influence. Don't put your joy in your stuff. Don't put your hope in Redeemer Baptist Church or any other church. Don't live for the blessings that God has given you. Instead, fear him, love him, worship him, not for the blessings that he gives, but for who he is. That's what Job did. And that's what we should do too. But before we finish, we need to answer one more question. Are we meant to walk away from this passage and think, be like Job? Is that the big application? In other words, is Job merely an example to us? Well, I don't think so. Although he is an example, James tells us he's an example. I think he's so much more. To use the language of the New Testament, Job is a shadow. He's a shadow of someone much greater. He's a type of another Job-like figure who was to come, a true and better Job. 
Job is a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the book of Job doesn't really make much sense apart from Jesus. Like Job, Jesus was blameless and upright. He feared God and turned away from evil. However, unlike Job, Jesus was actually sinless. He was the only perfectly wise man. And boy, was he great. He possessed the riches of heaven. He enjoyed the perfect blessedness of Trinitarian love. Yet from the height of greatness, he sank to the depths of misery. From, from the pinnacle of blessedness, he plumbed the depths of suffering. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was stricken, smitten and afflicted. Like Job, his suffering was so great that people were astonished at his appearance. He was so marred, so disfigured that Isaiah tells us he didn't even look human. Yet despite all this, Jesus didn't curse God. Rather, he was cursed by God. As he hung on the cross, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus, he endured the greatest storm imaginable, the storm of God's justice. And he did that for you. And he did that for me. He did that for all those who've worshipped God's gifts instead of God himself. He suffered and died for our sin. And he didn't just die, did he? But he rose from the grave in victory. He defeated death. And he did that to bring us to God. And so because of Jesus, this amazing, majestic, glorious God who is worthy of all of our worship, he's ours. He's our father. He's our friend, our king, our shepherd, our comforter, our savior. So whether the Lord gives or the Lord takes away, we can trust him. Because God has given us some wonderful blessings. Yet of all the wonderful things he's given us, none is more precious than his beloved son. And he'll never take Christ away from us. So whether the Lord gives or takes away, God's people can always say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray.